Hi guys, it's me, Lindsay Pinchuk, host and founder of Dear Found Her. And before we get into today's episode, I have some exciting news. You've asked and I'm answering. We're taking Dear Found Her live for some much anticipated networking events starting this fall. We'll be kicking things off where I live in Chicagoland with the goal to add more cities to our lineup in 2024. Our events will be free. You just have to be a female founder, but you'll have to RSVP. So make sure you get on our list so that you are the first to know when registration goes live. Space is limited. The link's in the show notes. I can't wait to meet you. Dear Founder, as you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. Today's guest built her company from scratch and sold a majority stake in it for $320 million. Yet she continues. Joanna Griffiths, founder and now president of Nix, is continuing to grow the brand that she founded. Before we get into today's episode and conversation, I wanted to say, hi, I'm your host, Lindsay Pinchuk, and I've been building brands for nearly 25 years. With just a $500 investment, I myself founded, built, and sold a seven-figure business that reached 3 million people per month. After my exit, I started all over again, supporting female founders to build their own brands. This podcast is my weekly letter to you to inspire you to find success through your own entrepreneurial endeavors. This podcast is also the show that I wanted 13 years ago when I myself became an accidental female founder. So if there's anything that you want to hear about or anything that you want me to share to help you through your own endeavors, I invite you to reach out. All you have to do is email me, lindsay at lindsaypinchuk.com, or you can shoot me a DM at lindsaypinchuk. And if you're inspired by today's episode, I invite you to share it. All you have to do is text it to a friend or you can share it in your stories. If you tag at Lindsay Pinchuk or at Dear Found Her, I will absolutely come and say hi and likely reshare it as well. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, I would love it. Love it, love it, love it if you left a five-star rating or review. That's how other entrepreneurs discover the show and the incredible stories that we share here. All you have to do is scroll down on this episode, go to the show notes, and find the link www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash dear found her. You have no idea how appreciative I am when you leave a rating or review. So let's meet today's guest. Joanna Griffiths is the founder and president of NYX and KT by NYX, the direct-to-consumer intimate apparel brand, Reinventing Intimates for Real Life. Since launching the company in 2013, Joanna has built NYX into one of the fastest-growing intimate apparel brands globally. Through a focus on impact work and product innovation, the brand is on a mission to empower people to to be unapologetically free. Joanna holds multiple patents 
and helped invent the leak-proof underwear category, which is pacing to become a billion-dollar category and has changed the lives of millions of people around the world. Joanna broke the Canadian record for the largest publicly disclosed sale of a private company by a female founder when Swedish health and hygiene giant Essity purchased 80% of Nick's in 2022. Always one to push for greater change. When asked about the record, Joanna said she hopes that this is a title she holds for a short period of time and can't wait to cheer on whoever holds it next. I can tell you after my one hour conversation with Joanna, that does not surprise me. Today's conversation is filled with so much incredible wisdom. Let's not wait another second to dive right in. Come on in and meet Joanna Griffiths. So today on Dear Found Her, we have a female founder who I have watched very admirably for quite some time. She's someone you probably know, you've seen her in the press, and she has built a business that is, I I can't even comprehend the business that she has built. Joanna Griffiths, who is the founder and president of NYX, is here live and in the flesh to share her story with us. Joanna, welcome to Dear Found Her. Thanks so much for having me. That's also a very nice introduction. So thank you. Oh my God, of course. You are really a force and I am so excited to share your story. So I'd love to just get into it. Tell us your story. Sure. So I, I founded a company called Nix, uh, K-N-I-X. We're, we're best known for being pioneers in the leak-proof underwear period underwear space. And so I came up with this concept to change the way that people thought about underwear to really open the conversation around the fact that so many people leak, whether it's during your period, whether it's during pregnancy or postpartum. Um, and yeah, came up with that concept probably, I don't even know how many years ago now, I think it's 16 years ago now, because uh, I'm pretty sure it was six when I started talking about, you know, founding the company. And now I've been at that for a decade. Um, I really, you know, saw a huge opportunity within the broader intimates landscape to create products that were very thoughtfully designed, that were designed with real people, real bodies in mind. Um, I like to joke that a lot of intimates were designed to be worn for, you know, five seconds or five minutes and then been taken off um, and really didn't take into account, you know, who was wearing them? How did they feel? um, Was it working for them? And so set out to redefine from a product standpoint and a technology standpoint what these products could do for people. And then the other piece was to really redefine what a brand could be. And that's because I, like so many of us, grew up in the era of, you know, Victoria's Secret and diet culture and a singular view of what beautiful was. And, um, you know, I really was seeing the damage that that was doing, not only for myself, but for almost every single other person around me. And so wanted to create a brand that truly celebrated people that celebrated diverse bodies and different ages and, um, you know, really honored the fact that we are all beautiful and we all deserve to, to feel that way. And so that was our North Star. And that was, you know, 10 years ago, we we started with this, this little idea that was leak-proof underwear, period underwear. It's now become a billion-dollar category. Um, the adoption rates globally are outpacing the tampon. So truly, like an idea that I think deserved to exist. And then we've had a lot of really incredible firsts along the way. I think we were the first brand to showcase people of all different sizes on our website to, you know, have ads featuring 
people over a certain age to show diastasis recti and like different parts of the, the human body. And um, it's just been really fun to be at the charge and kind of, you know, leading with um, ambition and taking a lot of risks. I think we've taken a ton of risks along the way. And then to, to truly be at a place now where we look around and these kinds of things that felt so breakthrough a decade ago are now table stakes where the media landscape really has changed. And I think the way that we um, are marketed to and, and sort of speak to ourselves and speak to each other has changed too. So I want to go back a little bit. I don't want to spend a ton of time about, um, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the product development piece, but you developed a company from nothing to a billion dollars. So I would love for you to try to remember because so much has happened since you came up with this idea. When you first had this idea, what did you do? I mean, how did you go out and figure out how to make this product? You disrupted a category with a product that I think everyone who's around our age wishes that they had when they were, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. And you did it. So, I mean, what, what, like, what was that? Because where you've gone since then is tremendous. Yeah. I love, I, I love product. It's, it's one of my favorite parts about our company and what we do. And, um, I like to kind of say that I'm a product hacker, not in the way that I think people think of like technology hackers, but really think I have a unique skill of kind of bringing different pieces together and creating something net new as a result. Um, so what I did was I bought every single product I could on the market. I sort of looked at two different camps. So one was we're disrupting underwear. What is really great underwear look and feel like, you know, what's the best underwear in the entire world that people would really want to buy, knowing that if we took that really great product and then innovated with this like technology that was leak proof and absorbent, that we would create something net new. So that was the easy part and the fun part, because, you know, who doesn't want to go buy a whole bunch of things, finding the best and kind of being in pursuit of that. The other thing I did was a little bit more nuanced. I was um, doing my MBA at the time and taking some pretty like, uh, experimental courses, I would say. And so for the absorbency side, I bought almost every pad and diaper, adult diaper on the moment. And I got a group of my friends and classmates to do a study with me where I would have them wear the products throughout the day. I would trigger text messages to them where they would have to go to the bathroom and release like pre-measured liquid capsules and dump them into the product and then get back to me about like how it felt, you know, it was comfortable, what was uncomfortable. Um, and so I did some pretty unique things like that to really learn from people what was working, what wasn't. Um, I did a lot, a lot of what I call digital anthropology, which is spending time in online chat rooms and, you know, really speaking to folks who were um, being vocal about having stress incontinence or experiencing these like weeks and, you know, what were they doing to solve for it. And I learned, you know, really interesting things. I learned that most marathon runners leak when they run. And when they pass by the water table, they're taking the cups and they're not drinking them. They're pouring them on themselves to conceal any kind of stain. So you just like, when you talk to people, you learn these things. And then you start to realize like, okay, this is a huge issue for athletes and runners. We better develop something that's going to work under run tights. 
this is a huge challenge for people who are pregnant. We should develop something that works for like your growing and changing body while you're pregnant and postpartum. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just, it's like a puzzle one step at a time. But what I think is so cool about starting a company, and it doesn't matter if you're making a physical product or you're building a community, there's a million different pieces you could put together to build the puzzle. And you never know the ones that are going to end up being game changing. And, and those pieces change over time. They do. They do change. Sometimes you've got like almost everything right, but there's one piece that's just needs to be swapped out. And, you know, we were certainly a great example of that in the beginning. We had the right product. We had the right idea, but we were selling into wholesalers. And so our growth was really slow and no one really took us that seriously. And it was super hard to explain because we had to like, you know, communicate through signage at stores um, and so we decided to change that. We're like, well, let's go direct to consumer. Hi guys. It's me, Lindsay. So many of you reach out and ask me how you can work with me and how I can support your business. So I figured I'd simply tell you right here. Since leaving the company I founded and sold, I've helped dozens of companies, big and small, build their organic marketing strategies through my signature method, Sweep. Sweep utilizes social media, your website, emails, events, partnerships, and publicity to generate and execute cost-effective community-centric marketing strategies to ignite your brand. Big companies hire my do-it-for-you services where I build your strategy and work with your team to implement it or find you the right resources to do so. I also offer limited do-it-with-you services where I guide you along the process of doing it yourself. You can also bring me into your company for a keynote address or a workshop to help your team level up and ignite your brand. If you're looking for that added layer of guidance, please reach out. There's a link in my show notes, book a call with me and let's see how we can work together. I can't wait to meet you and to learn about your business. Now back to the show. How long did it take from conceptualizing to all this research to actually having a product? Yeah. So it was, um, I'd say I came up with the idea I didn't do very much with it. It was like my, what I would talk about at parties. I'd be like, oh, I have an idea for a company. Um, I worked on the like more intense research stage for probably nine months. And then it was about another 12 months to develop the product, get through prototyping and have something in hand that I felt comfortable moving forward with. And when you did launch, how did you launch? Did you launch with a particular retailer? Did you launch retail and D2C? And, and I do want to segue into, because you guys made a huge, a huge pivot. So I want to get into that. Yeah, I, we launched with, it was 2013. So we did what every brand did in 2013. We launched with the crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> I remember talking to potential investors and they're like, what's your launch strategy? You know, what's the big plan? And I was like, oh, I don't have a big plan. <laughs> like, you know, you, you really kind of realize that, that a launch is a big moment. Um, so we did a crowdfunding campaign that went reasonably well for us, but I recognized it was really hard. And so my background was in PR and I came up with a PR stunt to pitch a big department store to pick us up as a brand through our crowdfunding campaign that had never happened before. It had always been individuals. What and was so the stunt? Um, to get them to buy through our crowdfunding campaigns. So okay. this idea that like a brand could be discovered through crowdfunding and then land like a nationwide department store deal, which got a lot of attention. It got a lot of press because at the time it was like, oh, you know, Lindsay's going to buy a pair of underwear. My mom's going to buy a pair of underwear. Like, 
your brother's going to buy that weird sock heater. You know, it's just like one-offs for everything. And, and so this was, was sort of a pivot where, um, it kind of elevated the whole crowdfunding concept that, that big retailers could take notice. Um, but that also, you know, to what you're, you're sort of referencing that set us down on this very particular path that I had no intention of being on, which was, you know, finding myself with a team of like myself and one other person selling into a huge department store and being like, wow, this is a lot of work and we can only do wholesale now because we don't have the time or resources to do anything else. And so that decision, well, you know, clever and cute and got us press kind of locked us into a two to three year strategy that ultimately like didn't work. So, so let's, let's talk about that strategy. So you launch in which store first? Um, Hudson's Bay, it's called. So it's the biggest department store in Canada, which is where we're based. Mm-hmm. They own Saks Fifth Avenue. So, like, yeah. Right. And so, and they, they have like, is Holt part of them too? They own Holt Renfrew. No? Um, no, they don't own Holt Renfrew. That's a different family, but that would be, that would be the rival. Okay. Okay. I actually, there's a funny story there. The day that I met with Hudson's Bay, I met with Holt Renfrew in the morning, the other department store. Um, and they had passed on us. They didn't get the idea. But when I went to the Bay, <laughs> Hudson's Bay, they asked me where I came from. And I was honest. I said, oh, I just had a meeting with Holt Renfrew, which I did. And they didn't ask me how it went. They just panicked that I was meeting with this other retailer. And then and they wanted you. And they were like, well, we want you. So don't work with them. We're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And I, they had no idea that that other company had totally said no to me like half an hour. Well, but I think that's so important to say and to share because it's leveraging your assets and leverage. I mean, you know, when you're starting out, you have to leverage every little piece of anything that you can grab onto. And that's part of doing business, right? Yeah, you got to hustle. And it wasn't dishonest. It just was like... You you just shared, you answered their question. question. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I still stand by that to this day. So they picked you up and what happens when they picked you up? You end up in, in an agreement with them. You're in how many of their stores? We were in their, like their 20 top A stores. So like the, the, the top, all their top doors across the country. Mm-hmm. And after you ended up in their stores, did other stores start to want you because of that? Was it a trickle down effect? Yeah, we, we did. We, you know, we did pretty, I would say we did well with wholesale. Like we were in seven or 800 retail doors over the course of two and a half years. So like we got added lots of places. So in 2016, you pulled out of 700 retailers to go direct to consumer, direct to consumer. What was the kind of the linchpin for that happening and what caused you to make that decision? You know, when something's going on in your life and everything is telling you that you're on the wrong course, like every, like, yeah, there were, there were so many things that were signaling to me that this wasn't the right thing to do. So, um, I can give you a couple of the, yeah, give me a couple of those things. Um, so because we were selling underwear and the, the wholesale price was like relatively inexpensive, um, we were, we didn't have like a single big account. Like every store was doing a a small volume, but every store felt like they had the, um, right to dictate what we did. So we were in kind of this unique situation where we had all these accounts 
none of them were big enough to really like do something meaningful with, but all of them, we had to kind of cater, like really, you know, be very considerate of what we were doing elsewhere. So that was one thing. Um, the second piece was sizing. So a lot of the stores wouldn't carry our full size range. And we were out there in the world with messaging around like size inclusivity and everyone's welcome. And we would send customers to these retail locations. We'd list them on our website. We'd say, hey, you live in Chicago? Great. We've got three stores in Chicago. Like here they are. And the customers would drive to the stores and they'd go and they would only have size medium, maybe a size large. And so that was becoming a really damaging experience for the brand and for the customer. So that was you like- You weren't a, practicing what you were preaching. We weren't. That was a big one. The third one was we landed probably the biggest interest in order that we had in the whole history of the company. But it was for a big, big, big retailer because we sold into kind of sports retailers too. And they had a huge gun business. And it was- during the time where I felt like school violence was at a peak, I think we've all seen now that's like absolutely not the case. There is no peak. And it just felt uncomfortable to me. So that was another one. I was like, I've been working on this order for two years. We finally got it. And I'm not excited about it. And so that was another signal where you're working so hard for things and you get them and you're like, oh, it still doesn't feel right. And then the final one was, not due to choice, but due to like sort of being, having no other option, we did another crowdfunding campaign. So we developed this like incredible bra. Um, I had a round of financing lined up that fell through and I really wanted to make this product. And so I found myself going back to crowdfunding to source the financing for the inventory to make this product. And it was our first bra is a, it's called the Evolution Bra. It really was a revolutionary product at the time. It was like one of these first bonded wireless bras that were like lift and supported and you could wear to the gym or you could wear to, you know, anywhere and was super comfortable. And we ended up selling over a million dollars in 30 days on that campaign. We broke the record for the most funded fashion project. And it's amazing. it was great. And I sold more selling direct in that month than I did in the first two and a half years combined of like... So you were testing DTC without even testing DTC and you, it was probably a big eye opener. And it was a huge eye opener um, because it was finally something that was scalable too. Like, I don't know if like anyone who's doing the other channels and you're on the road every day, you're doing trunk shows, you're at trade shows, you're like visiting retailers. Like I lived out of a backpack with my bum mannequin in hand, you know, just like going around. I'm just imagining you like going around with like a torso showing your product, you know, security was fun at the airport. They were always oh my like, God. It's in your bag. That is so funny. Do you have a dismembered body? Right. Like I have this like little bum torso, not like it's the size of an actual like torso, but it was cropped. So it's just like the, just the, the bum and the waist. That is so funny. But that is also just so cool that that's how this transpired. Uh, I, um, so after you, after that crowdfunding campaign took place and you broke the record and broke the internet and you probably realized you didn't have to carry around your dismembered torso body anymore on, on, to, on airplanes. What did you do? How did you make that transition? Because that's a very big transition. And what happened when you did? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because it was a huge transition. I basically, as a founder, I went into I went into hiding, like stealth mode for a full year. And I had to reset every single piece of my business. I had to hire different people. We had to put into place different systems. We had to change fulfillment partners. We had to like upgrade a web, like the website. So I basically started over is how it, it felt to me. Um, and I started over against uh, an intense time frame of delivering all of these orders and, you know, having customers waiting and, and sort of really wanting things to come, come together. Um, and it was a lot of work. It was super humbling. It's really humbling to be at something for multiple years and to raise your flag and say, Hey, I got it wrong. And I'm going to, for all intents and purposes, start again. Um, but it also, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience because when we did start again, I almost felt like a second time founder. Like I, I kind of had that first chapter and then I was having a new chapter and I had learned a lot from the first one that I was able to carry forward to the second. Um, but yeah, it was new systems, new technology, new partners, new team members. new. Skills. I really appreciate you saying that and also saying that it took a year because I think it's really important for people to listening to know and to understand that pivots don't happen overnight. And even when you have a great idea and you know that you're on the wrong path and you need to readjust, you have to do the due diligence to get on that right path in order to move forward successfully. Yeah. And it might take time. It does take time. And that's why I say I went into hiding because I did. It was one of the hardest years I've had of my life. I worked super, super hard. And I went into a borderline state of depression at the time because I felt so much pressure to get it right because it was finally working and I didn't want to mess it up. And then were that, you in stores still at that point during the transition? Like, yeah, how did that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we started basically a year transition at the same time to pull out of all retail stores. So it started with saying like, we can no longer ship to you we were at like an at once business. So if someone placed an order, we would always have stock. We'd ship it to them. So we moved to like a pre-booking system. And then we said, okay, this is our last, you know, season doing pre-booking. After that, we're no longer going to be shipping to partners. Did people think you were going out of business? No, but a lot of those, a lot of our wholesale partners were very upset with us. And I'm sure there's still a group of small business owners out there that don't like me and don't like the decision that I made because they... They believed in us first. And the truth was, we just couldn't do everything. You know, we had to focus. And But at yeah. the end of the day, it's very admirable that despite that, because I know like most people in general, but especially founders, none of us like to be disliked, right? We were people pleasers, a lot of us. And I think that that's a, a really admirable thing that you moved forward with what was best for you and your business, despite what might've been going on around you and maybe still is. Yeah. Don't you think that's one of the hardest things you have to learn as a founder is to make the unpopular call for the greater good of the company and the team, even though you hurt people or you're not yeah. happy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I made the decision to sell my company and my team had the choice to either come or not. And they were all included, but no one, I mean, there were people that weren't happy with that. And, you know, my vendors weren't happy with that. They relied on my business for a lot of promotion. I mean, it was, 
I get it. And so, but I think it's really admirable that you did that and that you stuck by it because obviously this decision is what changed the whole trajectory of your business and your life. Yeah. And no, like my comp, if I hadn't changed, maybe my team would be like 20 people in size, you know, not, you know, we'll be 400 in in six weeks. Like it's just, it, it would have been so different, you know? So I am grateful that I stuck to my guns on that. I am grateful that you asked the question about what the process was like, because it was hard. And I think sometimes we, uh, is glamorize a word. We, yeah, like, I mean, yes, we just, we make everything look easy and we pretend that it's like, Oh, a pivot, just push a button. And you know, here we are like the, it, every pivot is hard. There's a lot of work and you're, you're often living in two worlds at the same time, the current well, I mean, world and the place you're going, you know? And based on what you just said, I think a lot of us too are just guilty of not wanting anyone to see the hard times, right? Like we don't want anyone to know that hard things are going on. And, you know, you just said like we glamorize it, but like it just as, as founders too, we want people to think everything is okay on the inside. And it's very hard to tell people otherwise. So that's why I do ask those questions because it's so important to know that everyone has bad days. Everyone has bad years. Everyone has pivots that they have to work through. You know, like even Joanna Griffiths, who sold her company for $320 million has a bad day. And I think that it's important to say that. So thank you. No problem. And I think the key thing you said there is everyone has bad years. Like it's not just a day. You can be in a rut for a whole year, you know, like it's, it's business is not as much as investors and other people want to make you think it's not a hockey stick that's up and to the right. There's like natural plateaus that happen while you like gear up for what's next. And, um, yeah, so, so you can have, it's, it's not always just a day. (laughs) So up until the time that you made this pivot, you just, you described two crowdfunding efforts. Did you do any other fundraising before the pivot? Um, yes, I did a seed like friends and family round right before we launched. So before we sold our first item, I did a a friends and family round and then we ended up doing, we ended up doing a small round right before that second crowdfunding campaign, but it was never, it never felt like a guarantee for me because that previous one had fallen through. So, um, the, we, the, we were, we were really capital efficient. It was like less than a million dollars to generate our first 50 million in revenue. So we raised money, but by comparatively speaking, it was, it was a small amount. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast as I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast. Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. 
The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. So one of the reasons why you came onto my radar when you did, probably, it was probably around 2016, I'm looking at my dates right now, is because of the way that you went into investment meetings and you were pregnant. That's why you came onto my, you came onto my radar when I was at Bump Club and you were pregnant going into these investor meetings and people weren't so thrilled with the fact that you were pregnant and people questioned you. And I'm assuming most of the people that questioned you were men. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about that experience and how you overcame their qualms and came out the other side. Yeah. So I've done, I did two rounds of financing while pregnant. The first one was not by choice. I again, had gone through a really long process, had run a really good process, I think, and, and had picked a partner and, at the 11th hour, I think in fairness to both of us, we both felt like it just wasn't going to be the right fit. So we ended up parting ways. Um, and then I found out the next day that I was pregnant and expecting my first kid. So I just walked away from a $15 million round. I'd had this like great process with like multiple bidders and, you know, it's feeling like everything was good. And then all of a sudden I'm fine. You know, it's, it's all falling. It's all gone away. (laughs) And then the next day I'm closing on a house that I bought that I couldn't afford and found out that I was pregnant. So I went back out to fundraise and that first time it was hard and I didn't have the same level of self-confidence and the business was in a, a different state than it was the second time I did it. But I received quite a few comments that first go around. And I, you know, you, I'm hard on myself. I think a lot of founders are hard on themselves. I look back and there were certain moments and I have distinct memories of moments where I should have said something back, like something so rude was said to me that I should have walked out and I didn't. And I wish I had. Because when you just sit there and you eat it and you accept it, you like, I know for sure that person has gone on to say, bad things to multiple people, you know, cause they felt like it was totally appropriate. So, um, so that was the first round of financing. That was our series a, um, our series B was the one where that was super, super ambitious. So I found out I was pregnant with twins this time. I was going to have three kids under two. We'd just come through the COVID is really hard time being a founder. And I, our business was doing great. And I really wanted to like safeguard the company. I wanted a good partner. And so my board was super supportive. We decided that even though I was like expecting twins, I could run this timeline. I had great investment banking partners this time um, because I was sort of notorious for getting cold feet at the 11th hour and walking away from deals. That was like a very big pattern of mine. (laughs) Um, And we set out for the process. And I, I, you know, I think I was a bit naive in thinking that Nick's had got into the size and scale where people would not say those things to me anymore. And I was pretty disappointed to find out that coming out of the first like investor speed dating round that I did, that there were still some people who were raising questions about my ability to build the business and be a mother. Like, you know, is she going to take the money and run? 
no one wants to be the last money in before she goes and has her twins. Like, you know, just really questioning how I viewed it. They were questioning my ability to manage resources. Like it's my time. It's my company. Obviously gotten quite good at this to build it to this size and scale. I know how to delegate, you know, but still some questions there. And so I set a very specific rule during that fundraise. I said, anyone who questions my ability to be a parent and to build this company is immediately cut from the running. I don't care if they have the highest bid or they have the lowest bid. They're not allowed near, they're not allowed near Nick's. Um, Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked, it worked well. Yeah. I love that you just said um, the first time around that you wish that you, you know, had said something or, or whatnot, or wish that you had said no. And I also think that comes with time, age, and experience, the ability to do that. I mean, just yesterday, I actually said no to someone and it felt so good. You know what I mean? It felt so good to be like, no, you jerked me around and we're done here. Like, and to walk away. And, but I would not have said that 10 years ago at Bump Club. I wouldn't have. I think you're, that's a great point. I, I think you're nervous in the beginning to say no, because you're never sure if another opportunity is going to come around. And one of the things that I've realized, like, you know, now being at this for a while and, and being a female founder for a while is if we want to see change, we all have to hold the power of no. And we have to reward the people who are good actors. And we have to say, fuck off to the ones that aren't. Otherwise, thank you. <laughs> we'll continue. And we will continue to be at a greater disadvantage because of it. So I want to empower everyone to say no. There's always a better option. I so appreciate you saying that. So yeah, than working with assholes. (laughs) No, I totally. I I mean, and I think, well, and I, to your point, I do think in the beginning, everyone, everyone in the beginning is so afraid to say no because of the opportunity. And is this going to come along? And so we compromise ourselves and, you know, we work with people who are assholes and who you want to tell to fuck off. You know, I mean, it's, it, it happens. It's part of the process, but I, I just think that you saying it, me saying it and continuing to say it over and over again, people will do hear it. And, yeah. and, and I think that it's, it's really important that we say these things, you know? Agreed. Yeah. So you just kind of, we just went through like almost the whole timeline of Nick's. Yeah. When was it on the timeline that you realized, shit, like I have an incredible fucking product? The product piece, I, I've known along the way. We would always, even when we were selling to wholesale and things were small and it was slow, there was one consistent thread, which was we would always hear from customers, this product is changing my life. Like that was kind of a lifeline throughout where people really, really, really appreciated that. And, um, so the product piece I've kind of known there's been, when did you realize that like you'd made it like the company and the brand had made it, not just the product, I guess. It's probably around 2018 or 17. We won, I won this competition with Shopify. We got to, um, we were like one of the fastest growing companies on the platform and we got to go to the New York Stock Exchange and ring the bell and go to Fiji. And it was like, Nix was there. The Gymshark folks were there. Like, it's just like a lot of really great founders. And that was a moment where I was like, wow, I actually think like, this is pretty cool. There's so many vendors on the platform and we're one of the ones that are growing the fastest. So that was certainly a standout moment. 
Um, we've done a lot of interesting campaigns and it's not about the product, but where it's had a big ripple effect. And I, I've seen the power that we can have to, to drive change, like whether or not we get credit for it, the impact is there. So yep. those have been some big moments. Um, and then there were moments, there were moments during like, during COVID when we were, you know, everyone was struggling to make the shift to online and we've done that years earlier. And we just had all these products that everyone wanted because they were so comfortable and like, you know, what better time to try period underwear than when you're at home? Like, you know, if you're skeptical, you have a leak, who cares? Go to the bathroom, change your pants, you know, like, so stuff started working, but, um, I, I don't know if we can relate to this or not. There's always a fragility in your business where you never feel like you've made it. You always feel like you have to keep going because it it feels so precious that you got the success and you, I'm hyper aware that it could be taken away at the same time. So I never feel like we've made it. I always feel like we're there's so much more to do. I so appreciate that answer because like, People ask me all the time, like, what were monumental moments along your founder journey or like what was a monumental moment? And I can I also cannot pick one. And there are so many things that stand out. But like, I love that you just described so many different (laughs) things. No, because it's I mean, it really speaks to the founder journey, right? Like there isn't just one moment that like you're like, yes, we did it, you know, but I do want to get to this one moment because you sold a majority stake of your company for $320 million. And that's a really big fucking moment. So like, I mean, wow. What, what was it that you were like, okay, I'm going to do this. And how did you feel once that closed? Yeah. So I, I actually had no intention on selling the business, which is the interesting part. So the way that my twin fundraising timeline went down is I closed the round of financing at 4 PM on the Friday I gave birth to my twin daughters on the Monday, which happened to be International Women's Day three days later. Oh, my God. Tuesday morning when I was in hospital, I got the email from SDE saying that they wanted to talk again and they were like interested in acquiring the business. So all of those things happened within four days. I'm like, oh, my like, oh, my God. When it rains, it pours like you are you are basically the metaphor of when it rains, it pours. So I wrote them back and I was like, it's really wonderful to hear from you because I'd spoken to them in the past and I was like, your timing is terrible. I, you know, just closed our $50 million Series A four days ago and I just gave birth to twins 12 hours ago, but like, let's, let's kick off conversations. And so that started about a year and a half process of only us talking. We didn't speak to anybody else. I didn't want to go use a banker and, you know, market the company for sale. It was just are these the right partners for Nick's and could we do more together than we could apart? And that was um, a year and a half journey of getting to know each other and feeling really good about the people on the other side and our partners and knowing the key members of my team felt really good with the plan. Um, So that was, you know, all of those things happened very quickly, but then the actual process of first conversation until when we announced the transaction was almost a year and a half. So again, these things can happen in two weeks or these things can happen over two years. Like the timelines really vary, um, which is, it's hard. It's a mental game. Like once I decided that this was something I wanted, 
then, then it got scary because then you're like, there's still so much work to get done to make the deal happen. And I've now gone through the incredible exercise of wrapping my head around this and deciding that it's what I want. And so if it doesn't happen, I'm going to end up being like really disappointed, you know? Oh, I know. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And I mean, my sale is a minuscule of what your sale was, but when you, when you're there and you're ready to do it, you want it to happen. You want it to happen. Yeah. Like you, you sit on the fence and you're, there's so many things to consider and it's such a big personal decision and there's a million factors to, to take in mind. But once you decide, then you decide. So um, and my transaction is pretty unique as well. Like I, because I wasn't looking to sell the company, I still own 20% of the business. That's something that I really wanted. I really wanted to stay on and keep building. I've never worked harder than I am right now, which people laugh at. And, you know, my husband and I work together and he's always like, well, we, we like made all this money and sold the company. Like, why are we working so hard still? But then, you know, now I'm like, I got to build a company that survives generations. Like this is a legacy building company now. And how do I make sure that we're set up for success? And so that's been an interesting journey too. I think a lot of people figured I would just go peace out or change or change. They expected me to change. And that is a weird, I don't know if you went through this, like people expected me to be a different person and I'm not, and I don't want to be a different person. Yeah, maybe a little bit. My my sale was a little bit different because it wasn't $320 million, not even close. But I think that like people expected me, like people just thought like, oh, you sold a business. You must be a gazillionaire. I'm not. And like, you know, and I don't think people understand what goes into selling a business, not just like to your point, it took months and months to to happen. And it was mentally taxing and you're shaking your head. I'm saying that. So the people listening know that you're shaking your head. I'm agreeing. And, and yeah, you know, it's, it it was so hard. And at the end of the day, like I just, I needed a different exit. Like I was done. Like I was in a life stage business that I was the face of and I couldn't do it anymore. Like it was weird also. Like I had school age kids to be talking about strollers to people. Right but people expected me to, and I didn't want to. And so I like just really wanted to get out. And so, you know, but it was just really fucking exhausting the whole thing. And then when I was, and then I was on for two years and then I made the decision to leave my baby because it wasn't being managed the way that had been promised to me, essentially. That's probably what I can say right now. And, um, I'm going to air this and, um, you know, and that was a whole other like sitting Shiva and, you know, mental mind fuck. Totally. Yeah. And it's so interesting. A lot of people warned me about that. Like they're like, it's not, it's not going to be the way that they said, you're not going to like it. You're going to be out and all these different things. And I do feel really grateful that it's actually worked out to be a good partnership. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. But that, but I also like dated them for a year and you know what I mean? Like I was, my team's like, we're so lucky. And I'm like, we are lucky, but I also like, this was so intense, intentional too, but I've heard so many sad stories, you know, or the sponsor leaves. And then all of a sudden I had that too. The person who led my acquisition left within two months. And it was like like at, at the company, she was my liaison to the company and it was a nightmare. Yeah. But 
it is not a sad story. My sa- my story is not a sad story no. because I couldn't be doing this if I was still doing that. And like, I do believe everything happens for a reason. Great. I have two more questions to ask you. I want to be mindful of our time really quickly. If you were telling, advising someone who's selling their business, what are three things you would tell them to look for? In a partner. So, um, Ironically, because of that thing we just spoke about. So the fact that your main liaison at the organization might leave, I would look at the tenure of the employees that have been working there. Like how long have they been at the organization? One of the things that stood out to me about Essity was everyone we were working with had been there for 10 plus years. It was really like a family driven company. So I had conviction that my main contacts weren't going to leave like the next day. So I would look at that. I would look at their track record and history of acquiring other companies. Um, If they're talking about, you know, what's the plan for integration? Are you going to be fully integrated? Are they going to keep you separate? Can you do reference checks with other companies that they've acquired before to really make sure that that's true? That tends to be a big thing is people say they want to keep you separate, but then they they want you to use all their systems and get on there, you know, and then all of a sudden you're not separate. So that would be another one. And then what would my other, my, my third thing would just be to really think long and hard about what it is that you, the person wants and whether their, their energy level is to continue on because there's so many different ways that founder transitions can happen in an acquisition. I have friends where they sold the company and they literally handed over their computer that day and they never, they never did a call afterwards, you know? And then I have friends, we know I'm probably the other extreme where it's like, I sold my company, but I'm still a really big shareholder and I'm still super in it and I have a lot of rights and, you know, so that's a, another extreme, but it all comes down to your, your energy and your kind of how you personally feel going into that next chapter, because as I'm sure you can relate to Lindsay, like, when you're used to being the one running the show, whether they're the worst partners or the best partners, it's still going to be different. Mm-hmm. Somebody else owns owns it and it's not you. So I think really being honest about your energy levels and, and your willingness to be flexible and be good partners back, I think matters a lot. All of that is such great advice. So thank you for sharing that. And then my last question for you is what I ask everyone at the end. And that is what are three actionable steps that you would advise an up-and-coming female founder on if they were starting a business? Ooh, three actionable steps. And I know you could probably give me like 20, so... Oh, no, no, no. Um, Okay, so number one is to start investing in your own resiliency and mental health today. So whether that looks like, you know, getting into meditation or like finding runs or like, you know, doing whatever that looks like, this is a mental game. And so finding the tools to kind of invest in yourself with that, I would also say it's never too early to get a coach. Um, I held off on coaching until 2019. Um, it was way too long. I needed help so much earlier. There's nothing wrong with needing help. So I would also flag that one. And then I'm a big, big advocate for mentors, but I actually think they take a different shape than people think. So the people I've learned the most from are my peers who are Um, like at the same stage, maybe one or two years ahead of me, this is when you're first starting out because you're all, everything's fresh. You can remember the challenges in real time. And so finding your tribe of like other female founders that are going through it with you is, is so important as well. 
All such amazing advice, Joanna Griffiths, founder and president of NYX. Thank you so much for being here for your time. I know how busy you are and I know how precious time is. I so appreciate your candidness and everything that you shared today. And I cannot wait to share your story and you with our community. Thank you so much for having us. Great chat. Today's episode was one of my favorite conversations for so many reasons. It's not every day that we have a founder on the show who has sold their business for $320 million. But it also is not every day that we have someone on our show that sold their business for $320 million and acts like a total normal human being that you or I would be friends with any day of the week. I love this episode because Joanna shared without holding back. She was so true and authentic in what she was sharing. And she just spoke from her soul. And I think that that totally came across. I don't know if you felt that, but I felt that in talking to her when I hung up our conversation, I just said to myself, oh my God, like this woman is the real deal. There were so many takeaways from today's conversation. I'm going to share my top five in just a second, but make sure that you get on my newsletter list because we are relaunching it in a couple of weeks and you're not going to want to miss it. The link is in the show notes. So for now, take out your pen and paper. You're going to want to write these down. I'm going to give you my top five takeaways from today's conversation. Number one, when you're creating a product, do your market research. Anything that you can do to find a solution for the problem you're trying to solve, do it. Get creative and think outside the box. Number two, you have to know when to make a decision that's going to impact your business, good or bad. You have to trust your gut, you have to trust your instinct, and you have to go for it. Number three, believe in yourself and set your own parameters. Joanna cut out any investor who questioned her ability to run the company and be a parent. It's your company and your rules, so set them. Number four, invest in your own resiliency and in your mental health. Number five, find your tribe of female founders that are going through it too. Thank you again to Joanna Griffiths for being here today and for sharing your story, your knowledge, and your wisdom. I don't know about you, my listeners, but I learned so much from today's conversation. I am guessing that you did too. I would love to hear about it. Please make sure to tune in next week for another brand new episode of Dear Founder. Thank you for listening and thank you for being here.